The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. A mutiny inside the White House. This is Thursday, September 6th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Most people can see the freight train of trouble that is headed directly toward Donald Trump. Most people, but not Trump, apparently. At the height of his impeachment battle, President Bill Clinton had about 60 lawyers working in his defense. Trump has about 25 lawyers, fewer than he had when he entered the White House. About 10 of them have quit since. With White House counsel Don McGahn leaving soon, four of McGahn's deputies have already found the exits. The Trump White House also lacks communications people to develop talking points to help the president's supporters defend him. Filling the vacancies won't be easy. It won't be easy to find qualified available people, especially if it means putting themselves into their own legal jeopardies. And not only is personnel in short supply, there is no plan, either for handling impeachment or the onslaught of investigations the administration's facing with an apparently likely Democratic takeover of the House. We know these things thanks to 26 sources inside the White House who've talked to the Washington Post. Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, tells the Post that he and the president have, quote, talked about impeachment at different times, but Giuliani says that when it comes to actually preparing for impeachment, quoting again, I don't know if he's really thought about it in depth yet. And Giuliani seems concerned about that. Quoting the Post article, although Trump sometimes talks about impeachment with his advisors in other moments, he gets mad at the I word, as he calls it, he is raised. Sources say there has been talk of bringing in more lawyers and better lawyers. Trump's reportedly envious of the highly qualified attorneys already working for his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and former White House officials Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon. He wonders why he doesn't have lawyers like that, according to one source who's spoken with Trump about this. It isn't clear if either of those attorneys are even available at this point. It appears they are not. But those who currently advise Trump, the lawyers and strategists and White House officials who talk to the Post, say he doesn't seem to realize the magnitude of what he's about to face. They say Trump doesn't believe Democrats will take the House this fall, mostly thanks to his campaign appearances for Republican candidates who support him. That, believes Trump, is the only preparation he needs. He has no plan for what appears will happen next, and he doesn't have the people he needs to defend him against what is increasingly likely to happen. Most people can see the freight train of trouble that is headed directly toward Donald Trump. Most people, but not Trump. And as you will soon hear, he apparently doesn't even know what's surrounding him inside his own White House. Last fall, Trump's original legal team was telling him this would all be over by Thanksgiving. Turkey Day came and went. So then they told him it would all be over by the end of the year. After the new year had arrived, they told him end of January. Three and a half weeks ago, Rudy Giuliani told CNN the obstruction investigation would be over by September 1st. Today's the 6th. Traditionally, Justice Department investigators such as Mueller's avoid revealing anything in the last 60 days before an election, and the election is two months from today. And the special counsel's office has told Rudy Giuliani that it would avoid the mistakes made by James Comey. But contrary to popular belief, that 60-day moratorium isn't a law and isn't even a Justice Department rule. It's just a tradition. Special Counsel Robert Mueller and his team of prosecutors have already questioned at least 20 White House officials and at least 17 members of the campaign and transition staffs. With some of those jobs overlapping, that's around two dozen people that we know of. There are likely others. 
the obstruction of justice investigation still isn't over, and it still isn't clear whether a president can or will be prosecuted. And a new Democratic Congress, if there is to be one, won't be seated until January. Even then, impeachment is not likely to be first on the agenda. All of this, from impeachment to prosecution, can be influenced by public opinion, by the American people. Trump's prospects for survival there are slim as well. At this point, about half the country wants him impeached. A new Washington Post-ABC News poll finds that 49% of us want Congress to start the impeachment proceedings that could lead to Trump's removal from office. It's the second consecutive poll from different sources showing Trump losing ground. In this newer poll, 6 in 10 of us disapprove of Trump's presidency, while only 36% approve. A significant 13% more voters think Trump should be impeached than those who think he's doing a good job. And that 60% disapproval rating is an all-time high for Trump. It's up by 8 points over the course of this summer. Most of America has now turned against him and suspect he has tried to influence the Russia investigation. All those tweets about a witch hunt and the attacks on our Justice Department have not played well with the public. 63% of us support the Mueller investigation. 52% of us support it strongly. More than two-thirds of us think Mueller's case against Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort was justified. Fewer than one in five of us think it wasn't. Fewer than one in five. More than six in ten of us think Trump broke the law by telling Michael Cohen to make hush money payments. More than half of us think Trump's obstructed justice. About two-thirds of us think there should be no pardon of Paul Manafort. The same number think Trump should not fire Jeff Sessions. On no survey answer was the pro-Trump side represented with more than 36%. Barely over one in three Americans are sticking with Trump as things stand today, and half of us want him impeached. We also learned this week that Trump and then-lawyer Michael Cohen cooked up a plan to buy all the dirt on Trump kept in that safe at the National Enquirer, not just on Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, but all the stuff dating back to the 1980s. This new revelation adds meaning to a comment by Cohen on one of those secret recordings he's turned over to prosecutors. It's all the stuff because you never know, said Cohen. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all that info, Cohen said to Trump on that tape. Robert Mueller now has the cooperation of Inquirer publisher David Pecker, including perhaps the contents of that safe that pertain to Trump. And despite instructions to destroy the buyout agreement, Cohen did not shred it and has now handed that over to the feds. Cohen says the planned buyout, which never occurred, was part of an effort to protect Trump's candidacy when it became threatened by Trump's re-emerging past. Trump's longtime accountant, who would have cut the check, has also agreed to cooperate with investigators, along with former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen and the tabloid publisher who had worked so hard to support the Trump campaign and to keep Trump's darkest secrets in the dark. A guy we'd never heard of may prove to be an important link, meanwhile, in the Trump-Russia probe. W. Samuel Patton. He is on the surface a lobbyist, but he's also a close associate of former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. On Friday, Patton was charged with acting as an unregistered foreign agent for Ukraine, where Manafort also worked at the time. But Patton is also accused of funneling millions of foreign dollars into the bloated Trump inauguration fund, accused of selling influence to countries eager to make deals with the incoming administration. After reaching a plea deal with federal prosecutor Sam Patton is currently facing up to five years in prison and a quarter million dollar fine. His actual punishment, though, will depend on his cooperation with those prosecutors, something he has agreed to give. 
But Patton's also worked in Moscow alongside Russian intelligence officer Konstantin Kalimnik, who's been charged with conspiracy and obstruction of justice, and who is also tied to Paul Manafort. Patton is also connected to Cambridge Analytica, the company hired by the Trump campaign that was caught abusing its data privileges on Facebook so it could target voters with disinformation. For the record, Sam Patton has no criminal background and a history of supporting the critics of Vladimir Putin, and he's openly criticized Russia's human rights record. And now he's helping the Mueller investigation to try to minimize his likely punishment for allegedly not registering as an agent for a foreign government. And Patton's cooperating just as Manafort's about to go on trial for the same crime. Manafort, conversely, is pleading not guilty, and he's still not cooperating in the hope that he will be pardoned after his conviction without ever having to say a word. After enduring repeated attacks from Trump, the Justice Department's top guy in the Russian mob was ready to fight back as best any Justice Department official can. Bruce Orr, who was the target of a grilling by Trump-supporting lawmakers on Capitol Hill 10 days ago, revealed in that hearing something he'd learned over breakfast two years ago. During that morning meal with former British spy Christopher Steele, Orr says he was told that at the height of the 2016 campaign, Russian intelligence believed it had Trump, quote, over a barrel. That bears repeating for emphasis. Orr was told that Russian intelligence had Trump over a barrel. Orr says he was also told that Trump campaign aide Carter Page had met with higher-level Russian officials than he'd let on. For decades, Christopher Steele had been a reliable FBI informant. At that breakfast, Steele was urgently trying to alert the FBI and or the Justice Department of connections he'd found between the Trump campaign and Russia, just as the FBI was trying to find out if there was collusion between those two entities because it had also found connections. The FBI's investigation had also begun before this meeting, after an Australian diplomat reported that Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos had bragged to him that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton. Both Orr and Steele have been the target of Trump Twitter attacks. For 10 years, Orr and Steele had dined together as they shared a keen interest in international organized crime. On July 30th, 2016, their conversation pertained to a man who had a chance of becoming president of the United States and whether he might be over a Russian barrel. Steele also urgently alerted an American official whose patriotism is unquestioned, the late Arizona Republican Senator John McCain. The aforementioned George Papadopoulos was a campaign aide eager to please, eager for a place at the Trump foreign policy table should Trump become president. He excitedly told Trump and Jeff Sessions and other top officials of the Trump campaign he could get Trump a meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin during the campaign. Already convicted for lying to investigators, Papadopoulos is now saying through his lawyers that Attorney General Jeff Sessions was lying when he told Congress that he had pushed back on that idea and shut it down. Quoting the statement from Papadopoulos' lawyers, while some in the room rebuffed George's offer, Mr. Trump nodded with approval and deferred to Mr. Sessions, who appeared to like the idea and said the campaign should look into it. In the end, that Trump-Putin meeting didn't happen. The lawyer's statement came in the form of a sentencing request at Papadopoulos' behalf. His lawyers were asking for the most lenient sentence they could get since, as the prosecutors had admitted, Papadopoulos was but a small part of a very large investigation. And they said their client is ashamed and remorseful about what he had done out of loyalty to Trump and out of his own desire to be part of a new administration. We will learn of Papadopoulos' sentence tomorrow. The investigation of Russian interference and any cooperation by the Trump campaign continues.
Trump, meanwhile, continues to interfere with the investigation by continuing to mess with Jeff Sessions. This past week, Trump told Bloomberg News that firing his attorney general was avoidable. I would just like to have him do a great job, said Trump, indicating Sessions' job is safe until after the election. Trump defines a great job as blowing off the Mueller probe and focusing instead on more investigations of Hillary Clinton. Trump told Bloomberg he sees the Russia investigation as illegal and said that if Mueller subpoenas him, quote, we'll see what happens. I wanted to stay out, said Trump, continuing, but if it doesn't straighten out properly, I will get involved. Trump was again suggesting he might take over the Russia investigation and the investigation he wants on Ms. Clinton. I want them to do their job, said Trump of the Justice Department. In the meantime, the president continues to lay the groundwork for firing Jeff Sessions. Monday evening, Trump tweeted, two long-running Obama-era investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. Two easy wins now, tweeted Trump, now in doubt because there's not enough time. Good job, Jeff, adding, the Democrats, none of whom voted for Jeff Sessions, must love him now. As usual, Trump had gotten several things wrong. Working backwards, Democrats do not love Sessions, but were pleasantly surprised to see this Justice Department indict shady Republicans. And not all Democrats voted against Sessions. Democrat Joe Manchin of the red state of West Virginia voted for him. And one of the investigations to which Trump refers was started under his own administration, not Obama's. New York Republican Chris Collins was busted for insider trading, some of which was captured on video taken at a Trump picnic. The investigation of California Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter did begin on Obama's watch, but was for an actual serious crime, using a quarter million dollars in campaign donations for personal expenditures. In laying the groundwork for firing Sessions, Trump was also saying in that tweet that the best attorney general for him is one that will go after his political enemies and protect his allies. Quoting Republican Ben Sass of Nebraska, the United States is not some banana republic with a two-tiered system of justice, one for the majority and one for the minority party. These two men, said Sass, have been charged with crimes because of evidence, not because of who was president when the investigations began. Trump had been planning to play golf at his Virginia resort on Labor Day. Instead, he was back at the White House watching TV and staying angry. In trying to defend himself, Trump also seemed to accidentally confess that he'd tried to fire Jeff Sessions and Robert Mueller. I liked Don, Trump said of the lawyer that he'd just fired on Twitter, but he was not responsible for me not firing Bob Mueller or Jeff Sessions. Wait, so was Trump saying he'd tried to fire Mueller and Sessions? It isn't clear. Trump's previously denied wanting to fire the special counsel, despite reports to the contrary. He certainly wasn't declaring his innocence in this tweet. Trump is occasionally honest to his own detriment, as in the Lester Holt interview in which he admitted he'd fired James Comey over the Russia probe, or in the tweet in which he said he'd fired National Security Advisor Mike Flynn because Flynn had lied to Vice President Mike Pence, or in the tweet admitting the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians was to get dirt on Clinton, and in the stripping of security clearance from former CIA Director John Brennan. Robert Mueller continues to focus on Trump's eagerness to rid himself of Jeff Sessions and Robert Mueller. The tweet on Don McGahn didn't help Trump's case. 
Trump also staged a Twitter attack on Pulitzer Prize-winning Watergate reporter Carl Bernstein, who'd written a month ago that the president knew about the Trump Tower meeting with Russians in advance. Now, a month later, Trump was ripping Bernstein and his current employer, CNN. In a series of tweets, Trump wrote, quote, CNN is being torn apart from within based on their being caught in a major lie and refusing to admit the mistake. Sloppy Carl Bernstein, a man who lives in the past and thinks like a degenerate fool, making up story after story is being laughed at all over the country. Trump continued, now including CNN President Jeff Zucker. The hatred and extreme bias of me by CNN has clouded their thinking and made them unable to function, Trump wrote. But actually, as I've always said, this has been going on for a long time. Little Jeff Z has done a terrible job. His ratings suck, and AT&T should fire him to save credibility. Whatever was left of CNN's credibility is now gone, exclaimed Trump with corresponding punctuation. Bernstein has responded to Trump's personal attack, writing, I have spent my life as a journalist bringing the truth to light through administrations of both parties. No taunt, wrote Bernstein, will diminish my commitment to that mission, which is the essential role of a free press. CNN, he wrote, stands by its story, and I stand by my reporting. Bernstein also calls the Trump presidency a national emergency. Bernstein's Watergate reporting and award-winning partner, meanwhile, was about to publish a book about Trump called Fear. More about that book a little later. The attack on Carl Bernstein was just part of Trump's latest attack on that free press. He repeated the phrases totally dishonest and fake news. He even made reference to fake books and again accused Google of being biased against conservatives. He accused NBC News of, quote, fudging the recording we've all seen repeatedly of him answering the Comey question for Lester in a self-incriminating answer. It's reminiscent of his claim that the Access Hollywood tape on which he brags about grabbing women's genitals had been doctored. What isn't clear, other than the corner he's in, is why Trump is bringing up the Holt interview of a year ago. Every authoritarian leader eventually asserts himself as the only arbiter of truth, says a history professor at NYU. A president under siege was going on attack, playing offense for lack of a better defense. And he had once again referred to the news media as the enemy of the people. That chilling phrase would be repeated by the man threatening to shoot the staff of the Boston Globe newspaper. A 68-year-old California man has been arrested for using interstate communications to convey a threat with a possible penalty of five years in prison. Making threats is not a prank, says an FBI special agent on the case, adding it's a federal crime. Bob Chain of Encino, California, is accused of making over a dozen calls to the newspaper in Boston after it announced it was organizing a day for all newspapers to respond in unison to Trump's attacks on journalism. We are going to shoot you in the head, every one of you, said Chain, peppering his threats with obscenities. In an alleged August 16th call, Chain said the Globe staff would be shot in the head, quote, later today at 4 o'clock. The feds say Chain owns several guns, and they found 20 in his possession, including a rifle he had purchased this year. In his alleged August 22nd call, a Globe employee asked why he was calling. Because you are the enemy of the people, he replied. Perhaps he'd heard that somewhere before. And then, our scandal-ridden president hit the campaign trail he was eager to hit, believing these rallies would put a stop to any attempt at a Democratic takeover of the House. It was a chance to vent, also, after two weeks of events devastating to his administration. It was a chance to hear his people chant, lock her up again, 
while the body of John McCain was transported to Washington. Trump was in his element talking about Clinton. Look at what she's getting away with, bellowed Trump to the thousands of faithful who'd gathered in Evansville, Indiana. But let's see if she gets away with it. Let's see, continued Trump. Lock her up, answered the crowd. Rallies like these give Trump energy as he remained apparently deaf to the approaching freight train. But that rally in Indiana the night McCain's body was arriving at the Capitol was, to many, more alarming than usual. When Trump addressed those who revere him in Indiana, he didn't just sneer at the award-winning reporting he calls fake news. He accused it of being in cahoots with the so-called deep state. Conservative conspiracy theorists believe a liberal cabal has gotten hold of many high-level government positions, including at the Justice Department. They call this unproven coalition the deep state, and Trump's latched onto it, and he's now lumping the media in with it inside this theorized conspiracy. Trump wants that elevated to grand conspiracy, the FBI and the media out to get him. Even after we all learned that Bob Chain of Encino, California, had been arrested for threatening to shoot the staff of a major newspaper, Trump went to Indiana to stoke the fire. A normal president would try to calm political passion. A normal president would not go out and make it worse. You never know how many Bob Chains might be out there. The wife of a former NRA president turned to a Russian agent to buy jet fuel from Russia. Now behind bars awaiting trial, Maria Butina stood to make a million bucks if she could broker the sale of a Russian jet fuel to an American distributor, even though she knew nothing about the petroleum business. Described by prosecutors as a femme fatale, Butina reportedly used her charms on Russian oil executives she'd never met to acquire the fuel. While posing as a gun rights supporter during her time in the U.S., the 29-year-old redhead infiltrated conservative groups advancing the interests of the Russian government. Her efforts to sell that jet fuel allegedly involved former NRA President David Keene and his wife Donna, a well-connected lobbyist. The NRA remains under FBI investigation for possibly funneling Russian money into the Trump campaign. The National Cathedral ceremony to honor John McCain was emotional for many because too many, it felt like a funeral for decency. Three past presidents there to mourn, along with every living presidential candidate of the past 20 years. Wearing a Make America Great Again cap, Trump was headed for one of his golf courses, angrily tweeting about the Russia probe. Back in D.C., John McCain's politically active daughter, Megan, told in her eulogy of how her father had taught her to be strong. She mustered that strength through her tears and said, We gather here to mourn the passing of American greatness, the real thing, not cheap rhetoric from men who will never come near the sacrifice he gave so willingly, nor the opportunistic appropriation of those who lived lives of comfort and privilege while he suffered and served. Paraphrasing her father, Ms. McCain said America didn't need to be made great because it already is. Megan McCain was making it indelibly clear she was slamming Trump one more time for her dad, who had been ruthlessly disrespected by Trump. It became a theme for the funeral. Fellow Republican George W. Bush made vague reference to Trump when he said, if we are ever tempted to forget who we are, to grow weary of our cause, John's voice will always come as a whisper over our shoulder, we are better than this, America is better than this. 
Barack Obama referred to discourse that, quote, can seem small and mean and petty, trafficking in bombast and insult and phony controversies and manufactured outrage. It's a politics, said Obama, that pretends to be brave and tough, but in fact is born of fear. John called on us to be bigger than that. He called on us to be better than that. Even Henry Kissinger of the Nixon administration mourned what he called what is lost and cannot be restored. On a gray and dreary morning in the nation's capital, people were mourning John McCain and a sense of decency that departs with him. Hours later, Trump seemed to respond to Meghan McCain's eulogy when he tweeted in all caps and with an exclamation point, Make America Great Again. And Congress would reconvene, as partisan as ever, McCain's dream be damned. Also passing last week was the final loss of credibility for Lindsey Graham as a protege and friend of John McCain. Betraying what McCain had stood for and what Graham had supposedly stood for, Graham was on Fox and Friends joining Trump in attacking the Justice Department. Directly contradicting the findings of all of our intelligence agencies, Graham declared Russia's bias was toward Clinton, not Trump. Graham accused Russia of developing the Steele dossier that his friend had turned over to the FBI and almost before his friend's body was cold. Graham even joined Trump in saying of Clinton, no American would get the same treatment she did. If you were charged or suspected of this kind of misconduct, said Graham, you would be in jail now. Graham had not only betrayed the ethics of his mentor, he had joined the locker up movement. The Lindsey Graham of a year ago, when McCain was still alive, was saying he was 100% behind Jeff Sessions and promised holy hell if Trump fired Sessions. Now, Graham says, quote, we need an attorney general that can work with the president. Suddenly, there will be no holy hell if Sessions is fired, as he probably will be right after the election. Before the election, Graham had called Trump a jackass unfit for office. Graham's principled resolve melted away the more McCain's illness kept McCain out of Washington. No longer John McCain's wingman, Graham is now serving Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham might need Trump's help when Graham runs for re-election in 2020, if it's available. But with McCain gone, this would be a good time for Graham to make a new friend. A Senate replacement for McCain has been selected, and with a couple of surprises. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey wanted someone who would not only serve out McCain's term, but also someone who would run for election to that post. Instead, the governor tapped former Senator John Kyle, who says he's not inclined to run in 2020. The other surprising thing about this Republican governor's appointment to a Republican-held Senate seat is that John Kyle is, as was John McCain, a sometimes critic of Donald Trump. In a radio interview earlier this year, Kyle said, I don't like his style. Much of it is boorish. Resisting even when you're going to lose, Bob Woodward's bombshell book, Bob Seska, and a lot more after this. Delete your Amazon links. Delete them from your favorites. Delete them from your bookmarks. Delete them on all your devices. And then go to buzzburbank.com, click on the white Amazon link in the upper right corner, and you'll land on your very own Amazon page all over again. Bookmark that page. Make that page one of your favorites. Make that your link to Amazon shopping. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make after that, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. 
it was the first time any sitting president used executive privilege to withhold documents from a Supreme Court confirmation process. Trump High Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh had spent five years working for the Bush administration. Nearly half that time, he was Bush's staff secretary. With Kavanaugh's controversial views about the prosecution of a president critical at this point in our history, the Republicans running Congress haven't even asked to see his work. And Trump, after a nod of agreement from Bush and his lawyers, has invoked executive privilege to keep Congress from seeing 100,000 documents or more reflecting Kavanaugh's work history. Republicans would argue they'd already released 415,000 pages of Kavanaugh records, an all-time record. But they also dumped 42,000 more documents the night before Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings were to begin, leaving Democrats no time to review them. But more than 100,000 documents were still kept from view as Republicans drew this close to their decades-long dream of a solidly conservative anti-abortion Supreme Court. And Republicans did not give the National Archives the time it needs to do its usual gathering of records for a nominee. Without control of Congress and with documents kept from view, Democrats went into the Kavanaugh hearing knowing it was their last best chance to try to stop this confirmation. Republicans say Kavanaugh's 300-some judicial decision should be enough to see he's just right for the U.S. Supreme Court and that the stuff from his days in the Bush White House are irrelevant. Brett Kavanaugh has different things to different people. He is much farther to the right politically than the justice he'd be replacing, dramatically changing the Supreme Court's temperament for decades. To Republicans and conservatives, it's the dream court, the result of decades of wishing and hoping and ignoring the Supreme Court nomination of a Democratic president because they said it was too close to an election, never mind we're this close to an impeachment. To Donald Trump, Brett Kavanaugh is the ace in the hole, the guy who will try to rule that a president cannot be questioned, subpoenaed, or prosecuted despite the sexually explicit questions he wanted to ask of Bill Clinton. To Democrats, Kavanaugh is bad news for women and minorities, including the LGBT community. Kavanaugh is expected to bring the one more conservative vote needed to outlaw abortion. The Kavanaugh hearing started in earnest on Tuesday and immediately got off to a raucous start with Democrats asking for a delay to review those last-minute documents or to call the whole thing off until those missing documents could be acquired. Raucous also because of protesters at the back of the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearing room. Democrats asked Kavanaugh all kinds of things, including about presidential powers concerning subpoenas and pardons. Kavanaugh either avoided or outright refused to answer those questions, even when he was reminded of the legal jeopardy the man who chose him is currently facing. He would also not say whether he agreed with the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion. He would not comment on gun laws while the NRA spends a million bucks on ads promoting Kavanaugh's confirmation. The Democrats are trying to play hardball, even asking about Kavanaugh's apparent lies to the Senate when he was being confirmed as a federal judge a dozen years ago. The grilling continues today, even though Democrats know that in the end, Kavanaugh very probably will be confirmed and before the end of this month. You can't lose the election, taunted Lindsey Graham, and want to pick judges. Outside the hearing, protesters gathered to show their opposition to Trump's second Supreme Court nominee. Trump responded by saying that protesting should be illegal. Trump calls protesting in a country that guarantees free speech and free assembly embarrassing for the nation. In the old days, said Trump, we used to throw them out. More than 70 protesters were, in fact, arrested on the first full day of the Kavanaugh hearings. 
While Republicans in Congress and the White House want Kavanaugh, most Republican voters do not. Polling members of both parties, a record 71% oppose overturning Roe v. Wade, an all-time high, including a majority of Republicans. A Pew Research poll found that more Americans oppose confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh than that of any other nominee in recent history. Kavanaugh is historically unpopular, polling worse than either Harriet Myers or Robert Bork, neither of whom got confirmed after their Rocky nominations. A CNN poll found that more voters are against Kavanaugh's confirmation than the number who favor it. Women overwhelmingly oppose Kavanaugh. 46% of women don't want him confirmed compared to the 29% who do. Republicans in Congress either didn't hear this or plugged their ears as they plunged toward the finish line of a dream they have chased for decades. The following story contains explicit language, listener discretion advised. In his new book, Fear, Bob Woodward writes that former Trump lawyer John Dowd was certain the president would commit perjury if he were interviewed by special counsel Robert Mueller. Up until January 27th of this year, writes Woodward, the president had wanted to talk to Mueller. But on that date, lawyer Dowd set out to prove his point. He staged a mock interview with Trump, and as expected, there were stumbles, contradictions, and outright lies. Once he saw where this was going, Trump reportedly bellowed, this thing's a goddamn hoax, adding, I don't really want to testify. By March, Trump was eager to testify again, worried about the appearance of a president refusing to testify and certain that he could manage Mueller's questions. He told lawyer Dowd, I'll be a real good witness. You are not a good witness, Mr. President, Dowd reportedly replied, adding, I'm afraid I just can't help you. He also warned that Trump that if he testified for Mueller, he'd wind up in an orange jumpsuit. The next day, John Dowd resigned as Trump's lawyer. Mueller has now decided to let Trump and his lawyers answer some questions in writing, and interestingly, none of those questions concern obstruction of justice. Woodward reports in his book that when Robert Mueller was appointed as the special counsel to investigate Russia and possible links to the Trump campaign, Trump growled, everybody's trying to get me. Woodward reports that on repeated occasions, the Trump White House was paralyzed from dealing with either its own problems or those of the nation. Bob Woodward wrote about Defense Secretary Jim Mattis having to explain to Trump why we have so many troops in and around the Korean Peninsula. To prevent World War III, Mattis explained. With weapons and personnel in South Korea, a North Korean missile launch could be detected in just seven seconds. Our second closest base in Alaska would take 15 minutes to spot that missile. Woodward writes, Mattis was alarmed, telling associates the president acted like and had the understanding of a, quote, fifth or sixth grader. When the nation's military generals met with Trump about how his tariffs on South Korea could harm our national security, Trump fought the intervention. You should be killing guys. You don't need a strategy to kill people, he said. So, Mr. President, ask one official, what would you need in the region to sleep well at night? I wouldn't need a fucking thing, replied the president, and I'd sleep like a baby. End quote. Woodward reports that when Trump's current chief of staff, John Kelly, lost his temper, which was often, he'd tell co-workers he thought the president was unhinged. He's an idiot, Kelly reportedly said, continuing, it's pointless to try to convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. I don't even know why any of us are here. This is the worst job I've ever had. End quote. This new book by Bob Woodward quotes former Chief of Staff Reince Priebus as calling the president's bedroom the devil's workshop. 
since that's where Trump watched cable news and tweeted. Priebus called early mornings the witching hour, since that's when Trump sent most of his tweets. As for the Trump presidency, says Priebus, when you put a snake and a rat and a falcon and a rabbit and a shark and a seal in a zoo without walls, things start getting nasty and bloody. For the most part, Woodward's book reports that those who answer to the president try to lay low, try to keep the ship afloat, and try to keep Trump from hurting himself or the nation. It paints a picture of a dysfunctional administration led by a man who rules by insult and degradation, calling Jeff Sessions mentally retarded and Rudy Giuliani a baby to his face. You're like a little baby that needed to be changed, Trump reportedly continued, adding, when are you going to be a man? He told the man he'd chosen to be Commerce Secretary, I don't trust you. I don't want you doing any more negotiations. You're past your prime, he said to Wilbur Ross. He told the generals, the soldiers on the ground could run things much better than you. Former lawyer John Dowd described Trump as a profane Shakespearean king. When the Assad government in Syria attacked its own people with chemical weapons, Trump called Mattis to say of Assad, let's fucking kill him. Let's go in, let's kill the fucking lot of them. Mattis told the president he'd get right on that, then turned to a senior aide and said, we're not going to do any of that. Woodward writes that former economic advisor Gary Cohn told a friend he'd stolen a letter off Trump's desk that would have withdrawn the U.S. from its trade agreement with South Korea. Cohn says he did that to protect national security and that Trump never seemed to notice the letter had disappeared. The book says Cohn nearly resigned a year ago, calling Trump, quote, a professional liar. Cohn, who is Jewish, had been shaken by Trump's both sides comments after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, especially after Cohn's daughter found a swastika spray-painted on her dorm room. Trump refused to accept the resignation, telling Cohn, this is treason. Cohn, nevertheless, is no longer working at the White House. Woodward concludes that the Trump presidency has suffered a nervous breakdown. His book Fear comes out on September 11th, and is already a bestseller based on pre-orders. Trump, as expected, has responded vigorously to the book, calling it fiction. Trump says Jim Mattis and John Kelly were insulted by Woodward's quotes, but CNN reports that inside the White House, Trump is conducting a search for anyone who talked to Woodward for the book. Remember, Rex Tillerson was fired shortly after he reportedly called Trump an effing moron. The White House claims Woodward's book was fueled by disgruntled employees. Yeah. About that. There's an unusual op-ed piece in the New York Times called I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. The opinion piece is unusual in part because its author is anonymous. But the Times says it has confirmed that the author is a senior official currently serving in the Trump administration. The paper says the author approached it through a third party and then eventually spoke with the paper directly. The open letter confirms that Trump doesn't realize... The people in his administration work hard to jam up his agenda and prevent, delay, and walk back executions of his worst instincts. I know, says the author, I'm one of them. The insider says they're not part of the resistance from the left. On the contrary, the author says they want Trump's agenda to succeed in spite of his demeanor. But the Trump official also writes the root of the problem is the president's amorality. Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to any discernible first principles that guide his decision making. And, quote, 
Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants, and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. There is literally no telling whether he might change his mind from one minute to the next, end quote. And the official says there were, quoting again, early whispers within the cabinet of invoking the 25th Amendment, which would start a complex process for removing the president. The author warns us that the president of the United States is, in his or her words, amoral, anti-democratic, erratic, impulsive, and reckless. And he or she claims to speak not just for themselves, but for others in the White House. This unnamed Trump official says the group is not part of any deep state, but rather part of what he calls, or she calls, the steady state. This Trump official writes that if things seem chaotic now, you cannot imagine what they would be like without cooler heads surrounding Donald J. Trump. And this anonymous White House official was confirming that despite Trump's angry denials, Bob Woodward had written the truth. Woodward's book has set off shockwaves, a president's angry reaction, widespread denials, the search for who talked, and what seemed like an opening of the floodgates on insights into Trump and his White House. Trump, described as volcanic, called it a gutless editorial and asked treason, in all caps on Twitter. He also tweeted, the New York Times needs to turn the author of the piece over to the government at once. Trump complained about the nation's libel laws and called on lawmakers to change them ostensibly so he can sue the New York Times for this letter on its opinion page. Today, Trump continues his search for the mole in his administration who wrote this letter to the editor of the New York Times. There are theories. It's Vice President Mike Pence because of the author's use of the word lodestar, which Pence uses frequently. But we don't know. It could be anybody. It is a frightening prospect for our democracy when anyone takes it upon themselves to make presidential decisions and to undermine a sitting president. But it has happened before. In the final days of the Nixon administration, when Nixon was angry and drinking, Secretary of Defense worried Nixon would start a war or drop a bomb. So he ordered the military not to obey any order from the commander-in-chief without clearing it through him or the Secretary of State first. Nixon aides had also discussed invoking the 25th Amendment. But a mutiny is underway in an administration that finds itself under siege now from both the outside and from within. Talk has jumped from impeachment to invocation of the 25th Amendment, which outlines the steps for the removal of a president unfit to serve. These latest developments to our good fortune are the subject of this week's commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. In the dark days following the 2016 election, and after the initial shockwave of fear, dread, and more fear subsided, I began to spitball various ways the emerging resistance could successfully slow or stop the worst of the damage from the then-forthcoming Trump presidency. Based on everything we had witnessed, beginning with Trump's awkward escalator ride and continuing through every horrendous screechgasm along the way, we knew exactly what kind of president he'd be, specifically an incompetent, whiny, and dictatorial one, and we weren't wrong. Frankly, those of us who called it ahead of time deserve some acknowledgement for accurately warning the world about what was about to happen. Regardless, I thought the 25th Amendment was a remedy. I considered the midterms as a mandatory check on Trump's awfulness. There was the filibuster and possibly that some anti-Trump Republicans might foil Trump's agenda 
Despite the grim circumstances facing the world, there was a sliver of hope at that time. But I never considered the possibility that Trump's own senior officials would turn against him. And today, nearly two years since 11-9, the mutiny is underway. On Wednesday, and directly on the heels of the Washington Post's excerpts from the revelatory new Bob Woodward book, the New York Times published a galactically massive op-ed in which a senior official in the Trump administration reports that he slash she is part of an internal resistance squad of Trump staffers who are quietly yet busily thwarting Trump's more sinister and dangerous impulses. We can only guess that Trump is busily familiarizing himself with the term quizzling right now. In fact, an MSNBC staffer reported that Trump referred to the anonymous author as quote-unquote gutless. But what's likely been happening inside the White House since Tuesday is not unlike a less violent take on the ending of Scarface, with a radically paranoid Trump surrounded by enemies, and it's only a matter of time before something explodes. It's no wonder. The author of the op-ed dumped more fuel onto an already burning dumpster fire capable of engulfing the entire Trump presidency. Among other things, the author reported, one, many senior officials are collectively working diligently from within to sabotage Trump's agenda. Two, the author supports the president when it comes to, quote, many of Trump's policies. Three, these officials have vowed to preserve our democratic institutions. Four, the root of the problem is the president's amorality, the author wrote. Five, the official is worried that Trump isn't behaving like a conservative Republican. Six, Trump's leadership style is, quote, impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective, unquote. Exactly what so many of us on the outside have observed for all of these years. Seven, senior officials are acting to guard their work from Trump's whims. I've referred to Trump's actions as cruel whimsy on many occasions. Eight, the author wrote, Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants, and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. 9. Trump's behavior is described as erratic. 10. Those who the news media perceive as villains are actually the ones who are thwarting Trump. 11. The author says we should find cold comfort in the reality that there are adults in the room. 12. Quoting the piece, on Russia, for instance, the president was reluctant to expel so many of Mr. Putin's spies as punishment for the poisoning of a former Russian spy in Britain. He complained for weeks about senior staff members letting him get boxed into further confrontations with Russia, and he expressed frustration that the United States continued to impose sanctions on the country for its malign behavior. But his national security team knew better. Such actions had to be taken to hold Moscow accountable. 13. And finally, the author describes how cabinet officials discuss triggering the presidential removal options in the 25th Amendment. Obviously, everything we've been discussing since 2015 is happening right now, short of some of the more extreme forecasts, but those are perhaps yet to come. It won't take much for Trump to blow a gasket from the combined impact of these articles, along with the growing number of legal catastrophes he and his family are facing. And it's still possible for Trump to start arresting dissidents before this is all over, beginning with whomever he suspects are the resistance moles under his roof. And that's why, at least for now, I'm not as militant about the author and other officials emerging publicly to condemn their own administration. 
I understand the reasoning of David Frum and others who are wondering out loud why these turncoat Trump staffers haven't joined forces to resign in protest and to go public with their grievances, describing openly Trump's spastic, childish behavior behind closed doors. I really get it, and my first instinct was to exclaim, Attach your name, you coward! But after thinking about it, unless Trump is prepared to resign soon, the departure of these officials would leave Trump alone in the White House with only his sycophants and exactly zero moles, such as the author, to keep Biff in check as described in this op-ed. In other words, if all of these officials go public, they'll either resign or Trump will fire and perhaps order the military to arrest them for treason. That means no more quizlings inside the White House to stymie Trump. That'd be fine if Trump were days away from leaving office, but he's not. Are we positive we want these officials to out themselves? There's no way of knowing for sure yet, but the author of this article and his or her allies are preventing serious disasters from exploding in our faces. Seriously, if this is the case, leave them alone. Let them continue their work. Trump has to be contained by any legal means necessary. I realize we want to see these people hurt, and they will be, especially the Trump family and his inner circle. Until then, and especially as the Trump White House slowly immolates, we need all of the frenemies we can get, working to screw Trump from within. And after Trump's forced out of office via constitutional remedies, we can sort out all the villains and the heroes. Based on these bombshells, though, the end might not be far away. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. The governor's race in Florida got off to such a racially charged start. It's gotten more so, a lot more so. It began, you'll recall, with Republican Rick DeSantis urging voters not to, quote, monkey this up, as he referred to the chances Florida might have its first black governor. If it matters, and there's some question as to whether it does, DeSantis says he didn't mean it that way. But racist voters had, by then, already heard the call. A robocall to thousands of Floridians days after the monkey remark began with the sound of tribal jungle music. The voiceover was a person of indeterminate race speaking in an Amos and Andy minstrel voice and said, quote, Well, hello there. I is Andrew Gillum. We Negroes done made mud huts while white folk was uh, wasting time making their homes out of wooden stone. The mock Gillum also says he'll pass a law letting African-Americans avoid being arrested because, quote, if the Negro know for sure, he ain't done nothing. The call identifies its source at the end, a white supremacist group called Road to Power, which uses tech to spread its hatred of blacks and Jews. Road to Power is the same group that tried to turn the murder of Iowa's Molly Tibbetts into a campaign talking point on immigration. Now that group is stirring up trouble in a gubernatorial race. But as the real Andrew Gillum points out, people are taking their cues from DeSantis, from his campaign, and from Donald Trump. A key Senate race in Texas, meanwhile, is just plain interesting through and through. In the red state of Texas, incumbent Republican Tea Party Senator Ted Cruz would normally cruise to victory. But along comes the dashing 45-year-old Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat who's been described as Kennedy-esque and Obama-like. He's backed by luminaries, including LeBron James and Ellen DeGeneres. And O'Rourke is not shy about showing his liberal colors. Republicans have not been shy about attacking him. 
The Texas GOP tweeted a photo of O'Rourke from the 1990s in which O'Rourke, as part of a college punk rock band, was wearing a flowered tunic, or as many Republicans wanted to believe, a dress. O'Rourke back then played bass and toured the U.S. and Canada with the band Foss, which is a Norwegian word for waterfall. Republicans felt they'd gotten O'Rourke pretty well with that old black and white photo. Mostly, O'Rourke doesn't perform anymore, except this past July 4th when he played with Willie Nelson. But in trying to troll O'Rourke and make him out to be silly, Republicans had elevated a rising Democratic star to rock star status and kept him in the spotlight. Some women found his long hair, beard, and open collar sexy. Rock music fans found a candidate who seemed like one of them. He became a bridge between music and politics. The video that Republicans posted of O'Rourke skateboarding at Whataburger won him admiration from many young voters who might not otherwise turn out to vote. The Republican plan to embarrass Beta O'Rourke had backfired. Badly. The next move for Texas Republicans is bringing in the big gun, Donald J. Trump, to campaign for Ted Cruz and to insult Beta O'Rourke. But Trump's own words will be there to greet him and haunt him, at least on one giant billboard. During the 2016 campaign, Trump had tweeted, Why would the people of Texas support Ted Cruz when he's accomplished absolutely nothing for them? Concluding, he's another all-talk, no-action politician. Thanks to a money-raising effort on GoFundMe, those words from Trump will greet Trump when he arrives in Texas to campaign for Ted Cruz. Texas hasn't elected a Democrat to the Senate in 30 years. This year might be different. If O'Rourke wins in November, that Texas Senate seat flips from red to blue, and Democrats increase their chances of taking control of a House of Congress that is currently held by just a one-vote majority. The Senate. So like the governor's race in Florida and congressional races around the country, this Texas Senate race is about Trump or not Trump. And then there are the midterm races across the country that have attracted candidates from the fields of law enforcement and national security. That story begins with Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat running to unseat Virginia Congressman Dave Bratt. Ms. Spanberger is a former CIA officer and now... Thanks to a Republican group, all of her personal information is public, including her social security number, as well as documents gathered to vet her for security clearance. This Republican group is a political action committee tied to House Speaker Paul Ryan, and it released all this highly personal information on Spanberger with very few redactions. The documents include her answers to highly personal questions that are asked in the course of a security background check to become a CIA officer or almost any government employee. Spanberger has sent a cease and desist letter to Paul Ryan's Congressional Leadership Fund, which is spending $100 million on the midterm campaigns. The PAC says it got sensitive information on Spanberger from another Republican entity, the opposition research firm America Rising. America Rising says it got the documents by simply asking for them through the U.S. Postal Service, where Spanberger had also applied for work. The Postal Service now admits its error and says it has taken steps to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. But Ms. Spanberger is still holding Paul Ryan's group responsible, saying she has clear evidence the group gave a copy of her security papers to at least one news outlet. Quoting her, I am proud of my service and not ashamed of the information I submitted. I have nothing to hide, but as any American in a similar situation would be, I am concerned about my privacy and security. 
Spanberger says she took serious security measures when she announced her candidacy because, knowing from her CIA experience, she knew she'd be targeted. But quoting again, I expected those attacks to come from foreign adversaries, not domestic groups associated with members of Congress. Elisa Slotkin doesn't know what to expect, but she suspects she's next. Slotkin is a former CIA analyst who's running as a Democrat for Congress in Michigan. She, too, filled out a highly sensitive form listing her most personal, personal history. The questions are about money, sex, and drugs, but honesty is the main focus of the nation's security screeners. The Postal Service says it deeply regrets its human error in releasing this sensitive material, but adds it may have accidentally released others. Never before has that security application been used for political means but it has now for Abigail Spanberger. Elisa Slotkin worries she will be the next to be doxxed by Republicans. Thousands and thousands of Americans have filled out that questionnaire known as an SF-86. Will their honest, confidential answers also be exposed? This has never happened before. But is this the new normal? Quoting Slotkin, there are kinds of techniques our foreign adversaries used. It's just deeply concerning that an American political organization would adopt those techniques on our own democracy. She's calling on Republicans to disavow themselves from this practice and to stand up for privacy. So far, none have. Democrats face other obstacles. There are rocks for a blue wave to crash into. A prime example is North Carolina, where an unconstitutionally gerrymandered election district map will be used on November 6th. A federal court has ruled that, no, there isn't enough time now to redraw the district map into something a little more constitutional. Late last month, that same court ruled that the Republicans who rule North Carolina had jerry-rigged the voting map in a way so partisan it violates the 14th Amendment of equal protection under the law. That same unconstitutional map will be used in the upcoming election. Still, Democrats have a solid chance to retake control of the House and a hint of a chance at control of the Senate. The aforementioned Washington Post-ABC News poll also found that registered voters favor a Democrat over a Republican in this upcoming election by a margin that has expanded over the summer to 14%. Dems now lead 52% to 38% in a gap that's more likely to expand than shrink. Also, 63% of registered voters who did not vote in the 2014 midterms say they absolutely positively will in this one. This year's progressive wave continues and the Democratic Party edges its politics further to the left. In Massachusetts, an African-American woman from Boston is about to become the first African-American woman to represent that state in Washington. Spending half the money of her incumbent rival, Ayanna Presley defeated popular 10-term Congressman Michael Capuano. The city councilwoman's urgent campaign battle cry was that in the Trump era, quoting her, change can't wait. Quoting a young voter named Linus, it felt like a good time to give someone who's not a white male a shot, and I liked that she's more outspoken. Capuano, who's closely aligned with Presley on policy, conceded early and extremely graciously. He said Ayanna Presley would be a good person to have in Congress. 582 children are still being held in federal facilities, still separated from their immigrant parents, and the Trump anti-immigration effort continues. Under Trump, there's a crackdown on every aspect of immigration, including the legal kind. Now, even bona fide U.S. citizens 
are seeing their citizenship thrown into question. A man the Washington Post refers to only as Juan can show you on his birth certificate that he was born in Brownsville, Texas. He's worn a uniform in this country for much of his 40 years as an American citizen. Three years a private in the Army. These days he's a state prison guard, but he's even worn the uniform of the U.S. Border Patrol. But Juan got a letter from the State Department informing him it could not renew his passport because the government now believes he is not an American citizen. This crackdown focuses on people like Juan, whose birth certificates report they were delivered by a midwife, not a hospital. The use of midwives is common in that part of the country, partly for a lack of accessible, affordable health care. Juan is among thousands of Hispanics who live close to the border, accused of having fraudulent birth certificates. Quoting a Houston lawyer, we're seeing these kinds of cases skyrocketing. For Juan, that means several thousand dollars in legal fees through his 13 bucks an hour prison job. An immigration raid on a Texas manufacturing company last week involved multiple helicopters and 300 ICE agents. 160 people were apprehended. Labor Day, the one day a year we honor the American worker, but for Trump, it was a day to attack a top union leader. AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka was on Fox saying Trump's new trade deal should include Canada. After blowing off his plans to play golf in the Virginia humidity, Trump took to angry tweeting, and suddenly it was Trump versus Trumka. Trump said Trumka represented his union poorly on television, adding, it's easy to see why unions are doing so poorly. Trump kicked off the Labor Day weekend by canceling scheduled pay raises for 2 million federal employees across the country. Their 2% raises were due to kick in this coming January, but Trump says the federal budget can't afford it. The reason for the tight budget is the trump Republican tax plan that cuts taxes for corporations and the rich disproportionately. The money's just not pouring in as it had been, so no raise for the workers. Presumably, these two million disappointed federal workers also vote in elections. After all the battering and chiseling away at Obamacare, it's still standing and not fading away. New government numbers show that the number of people with health insurance has held steady at nearly the number from the previous year. That means more than 20 million people who didn't have health insurance before the Affordable Care Act was passed got insurance and still have it today in spite of Trump and Republican efforts. States that took advantage of Medicare expansion have even better numbers. Red states that passed on Medicare expansion have seen an increase in the number of uninsured people. In the U.K., prosecutors have charged two Russian citizens with the poisonings of a former Russian double agent and his daughter. Still recovering, the pair were poisoned six months ago on British soil. And although the two men are back in Russia and not likely to travel to any European country to be arrested, Britain has issued a European arrest warrant in case they ever do. Russia, of course, has denied any knowledge of the attempted murders, which months later accidentally killed a woman who'd picked up a perfume bottle that contained the uniquely Russian poison. U.S. intelligence thinks it knows the source of the headaches, deafness, and brain damage inflicted on Americans in Cuba and China. Three dozen diplomats and or members of their families suffered these symptoms and others, including hearing spoken words in their heads, hearing voices in their heads. The weapon fired a microwave beam, a beam of microwave radiation, a weapon 
that Moscow has repeatedly been developing since the Cold War. Some microwaves can be perceived as sound. Microwaves can make you hear something that isn't there. American military intelligence feared the weapon's mission was mind control, up to and including disabling an adversary. The Trump administration, in its rush to undo Obama's work on Cuba, immediately blamed Cuba for the attack, not knowing the weapon's Russian history. And then more Americans were attacked by that same weapon in China. Doubtful the Cubans had anything to do with that. Canada which was there for us after 9-11 and for the misadventures that followed, continues to be bullied by Trump. Over the weekend, Trump told Congress he'd struck a new trade deal with Mexico to replace the NAFTA deal, which he intends to scrap. The NAFTA deal includes the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Trump's new deal excludes Canada and turns up the pressure on Canada to join Trump and Mexico in abandoning NAFTA. It's Trump's way of getting a new deal with Canada, which he's accused of taking advantage of the U.S., what it might not be is legal. U.S. lawmakers oppose Trump's New Deal and they're against ditching NAFTA and they wonder if he even has the authority to do any of this since it's up to Congress to ratify these things. Congress has already notified Trump that it will not sign off on any new NAFTA deal unless it includes the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. The negotiating and wrangling continue and apparently without Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, described earlier by Trump as past his prime. A genital flesh-eating virus, more amusing highway spills, and a really big bomb in the third and final segment up next. Stop spending restless nights flipping and reshaping your pillow to get cool and dry. Wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Sleep on a hollow pillow. The hollow pillow stays cool while giving your head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. Now, a lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses but still haven't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight, and they don't give you the full night support you need for good posture and good sleep, and you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot, and it gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into Hullo's pre-shrunken, certified organic, unbleached cotton twill casing, all of it right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool and, most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hollow pillow by removing or adding more hulls through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I'm so happy with mine after well over a year of use, I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement and proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hello pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going to hollowpillow.com slash buzz. That's hollowpillow.com slash B-U-Z-Z. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hollowpillow.com slash buzz. It appears the news about climate change will continue to get worse as the story about it gets pushed 44 pages deep into this script. First, the Trump administration is now pouring over the clean air regulation enacted by the Obama administration that restricts the amount of poisonous mercury in the air that we breathe. Mercury is tied to brain damage and damage to the entire nervous system, including that of a fetus. 
The Trump administration hopes to write a rule that's a bit more friendly to industries that spew mercury into our air, replacing rules that were 20 years in the making. The mercury restrictions Trump wants to remove were estimated to have saved nearly $10 billion a year and thousands of American lives. The week before, the administration proposed a replacement for Obama's clean power plan that restricted what coal-fired power plants can spew into the air, especially carbon dioxide, which is one of the main causes of global warming. In more encouraging news, some places plan to go beyond the Paris Climate Accord that was scrapped by Trump. California set a deadline of 2045 to have 100% carbon-free electricity. It's a no thank you to the fossil fuel industry embraced by Trump. California already gets a third of its electricity from clean sources. The tourist mecca of Orlando, Florida is also weaning itself off carbon-based energy. Orlando hopes to be off the stuff entirely by 2050. It will join Boston, Chicago, and L.A. in forming a group that hopes to get better prices on the new technology by buying in bulk. In Denmark, the company that makes Lego toy bricks says it's intently researching making those bricks without petroleum-based products. Lego hopes to make the bricks entirely from plant-based or recycled materials by 2030. The hard part is making blocks that will lock together but still separate easily and tough enough to survive the foot of an unsuspecting parent. Restaurants and chains, including McDonald's and Starbucks, are already doing away with plastic straws. Coca-Cola plans to collect and recycle all of its cans and plastic bottles by 2030. And although more than 300 states and counties and cities and companies have voted to uphold the Paris Accord, it won't be enough. This according to a new study of 6,000 cities, states, and regions around the world. The study included data on the amount of greenhouse gases those entities release and on how much they plan to cut back. Conclusion, it wasn't enough. The study does not address whether it would be enough if the U.S. government were also on board. The FDA, meanwhile, has put out a warning about liquid nitrogen in ice cream, cheese puffs, cereal, adult beverages, and fancy restaurant desserts. Liquid nitrogen is used by chefs and bartenders these days to make their creations puffy. Ice cream makers use liquid nitrogen to help keep it frozen, and a couple of new frozen desserts, including one called Dragon's Breath. Breathing. The liquid nitrogen is precisely the problem, especially for people with asthma. The FDA says we should avoid eating, drinking, or even handling foods prepared with liquid nitrogen, either at the point of sale or immediately before consumption. The FDA is also warning about a class of medicine for type 2 diabetes. This drug can apparently invite a flesh-eating virus that attacks the genitals. This class of drugs, SGLT2, was already known to cause urinary and yeast infections because, as a diabetes medicine, it makes the urine sweeter, creating a perfect breeding ground for this flesh-eating virus. This class of drugs is sold under more than a dozen brand names, so as always, one should consult one's doctor or pharmacist. Two of our top male singers lost their voices this past week. U2's Bono thought he'd be out longer after losing his voice during a show in Berlin over the weekend. But Bono now says he's feeling better and under the care of what he calls a great doctor. He says he'll be back to full voice for the rest of the tour. But Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl also had to postpone shows after losing his voice. He's rescheduled his upcoming shows to, in Canada to late October. Grohl tweeted, this is the last time I ever make out with Bono. 
Crazy Rich Asians was the Labor Day weekend movie winner, uh, scoring the top spot for the third straight week with another $30 million. That's only a slight drop from the previous weekend, meaning word of mouth is keeping that movie on top. It's Hollywood's first mostly Asian cast in 25 years. The Meg, likewise, held steady in second place. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Last week, I reported that Alec Baldwin would play Batman's dad, Thomas Wayne, in the upcoming film about the origin of the Joker. The producers, as I reported, said Baldwin would play a Trump-like character. Baldwin apparently didn't like the sound of that. He's pulled out of the project, tweeting, Not happening. Not happening. The FBI has recovered a pair of Judy Garland's ruby slippers from the movie The Wizard of Oz. The slippers had been stolen from a museum in Minnesota. They've been recovered in a sting operation. It's one of four pair of shoes worn in that 1939 movie. In Passings and Passages, Aretha Franklin's star-studded controversy-laden funeral was held this past week, including a motorcade of 100 pink Cadillacs. Franklin was the first woman ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Stevie Wonder was among the many who turned out to pay tribute. It was a check-on-welfare call for Los Angeles police who arrived at the home of ER actress Vanessa Marquez and shot her to death when she brandished a pistol. Marquez has been suffering seizures and mental issues and had refused medical assistance for more than 90 minutes before drawing her gun. Marquez played nurse Wendy Goldman on ER for three seasons in the mid-1990s. The pistol turned out to be a BB gun. And the world mourns the loss of millions of items from the oldest and most important museum in Brazil. As the biggest natural history museum in Latin America, Brazil's 200-year-old National Museum held scientific exhibits and historical artifacts. No one got hurt, and it isn't clear how the blaze started. One expert called the fire a lobotomy of the Brazilian memory. A new museum coming to Las Vegas is closer, albeit perhaps less important. It's the Cannabition Cannabis Museum, opening on Fremont Street this month. At a recent sneak preview, museum officials unveiled the institution's main attraction, a bong that's 25 feet tall. It weighs 800 pounds, and it glows in the dark, and it reportedly works. But it won't get used in public unless and until Nevada approves public consumption of marijuana. Recreational and medical weed are already legal in the Silver State, and the Cannabis Museum's curator says Vegas will be the new Amsterdam of the world. As for that 25-foot bong, he says, I see it as a big lighthouse and beacon that just says, just smoke me. We know, however, of a skateboard that's even bigger. Guinness says it's the biggest skateboard in the world at a little over 35 feet in length. It's mounted on big race car tires. It can easily accommodate five riders at once. It's built on a 12 and a half times scale of the one used by It's built on a 12 and a half times scale of the one used by Rob Deerdick on MTV's Fantasy Factory. Quoting the artist, the hardest part was not having any directions or blueprints. The artist says one time he got pulled over by a cop. Quoting the Superboard's creator, I thought I'd done something wrong. And he said, can I get on your board? Clean Souls is a store in Roanoke, Virginia, that sells sneakers and more. This summer, there have been two break-ins at the store, one in late July, again in late August. The thieves took shirts, hoodies, and a jacket and 
13 shoes. The odd number 13 apparently didn't matter to the thieves since each of the 13 shoes taken were just for the right foot. And finally, they call them crisps, we call them chips, whatever they're called. Little bags of them were all over a highway in Britain this week. Bright yellow bags of Quaver's crisps were scattered about, but no one got hurt when a lorry, or truck as we call them, overturned on the M60 outside Cheadle, England. It's another classic highway spill in any language. And it's amazing no one got hurt by an explosive truck spill in Texas. A truck carrying aerosol cans of flammable liquids burst into flames, and the driver pulled over, detached the trailer, and got a safe distance away. It's good that he did. The fire led to large explosions so powerful and hot that a stretch of I-35 was turned to gravel. Aerosol cans shot into the air, some of them exploding like big fireworks. Traffic north of Austin was tied up for eight hours and remains detoured today while part of that road is replaced. Those aerosol cans, by the way, contained the male hygiene alternative known as Axe Body Spray. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.